Welcome to IEQ Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. Yes, the rules have changed. listening from and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio, IAQ Radio. My name is Cliff Zlotnicker, the Z-Man, and here with me in Studio B in Coriopolis, Pennsylvania, is my son, our cyber jockey, Zach Zlotnick. Hey. Oops, I nearly missed that truck there. Yep. You can contact me at cliffzlotnick at unsmoke.com. You can contact Radio Joe Hughes by emailing to him at joe.use at iaqtraining.com. Today's segments include the microband trivia quiz. Ordinarily, we tell you how to contact the show live, but we're pre-recorded this week. This week's show is a killer. And our two segments this week are Carpet Monsters and Killer Spores, a discussion with Dr. Nick Money, and My House is Killing Me, a discussion with Jeffrey May. We would like to thank today's sponsors, Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information are available at ieconnections.com. Dryease Products, providing equipment for drying water-damaged homes and buildings. Dryease is first in drying solutions. You can contact them at dry-eaz.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractor shop. You can contact John Don at jondon.com. The Restoration Forum at restorationforum.com. And last, especially not least, Microban Systems, the microbial management company at microban.com. Hey, Zach, as this week is shows a killer, we have a movie that deals with killing. Killing. <laughs> this is a 1960 movie, and it was the first American film which showed a toilet flushing on screen. Zach, do we have a musical hint for the audience? Yeah, we do. <laughs> All righty. We're looking for the name of that movie. Okay, I guess we can move into our first segment. Jeff May. But it's killing me. Killing me slowly. <laughs> Thank you, CJ. Uh, of course. Jeff May is the president of May Home Inspections, Inc. Uh, also, May Indoor Air Investigations. I don't know. I'm looking at the back of the book. One has May Home Inspections, and I've got May Air Indoor Air Investigations on my uh, little resume here. 
Jeff is the uh, conducts indoor environmental surveys in homes, schools, and off, uh, offices. He has authored several books. One I'm holding in my hand, My House is Killing Me, one of my favorites. Uh, he's also had the Home Guide for Families with Allergies and Asthma, the Mold Survival Guide for Your Home and Health, and Spaceship Earth, Physical Science. Jeff is a uh, graduate from the Columbia College in chemistry. He's also got, gone to Harvard University and got his master's degree there in organic chemistry, and he's a well-known speaker, lecturer, and uh, writer in the indoor air quality industry, and we're very fortunate to have him on today. Jeff, are you on the line? Hello, Jeff. I think he's three. Uh, Zach, you got to get three. Hello, Jeff. No. Nope. Uh, this is Wayne. I'm sorry, Wayne. It should be one. Hmm, he's not there. Okay, we lost Jeff, but he'll be, maybe he can dial back in. In the, in the meantime, let's see if uh, Pete got back on yet. Yeah. Watchdog, are you on there? No, he's not. Technical difficulties. Hey, it happens to the best of us. Indeed it does. That's all right. We can... Indeed, indeed it does. All right. We had uh, IAQ guest number one was... There he is. There he is. All right. Hello, Jeff. Hello, Jeff. I got disconnected, Joe. There you are. There we are. There we go. Right. I'm back. Hey, I'm he's back. <laughs> he's ready to roll. Ready to rumble. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we really... Speaking of rumble, actually, I sold my home inspection business, so all I do is air quality now. That's it. May Indoor Air Investigations. May Indoor Air Investigations. Yes, and the latest book was My Office is Killing Me. I wrote that science book, uh, Spaceship Earth, when I was a kid. <laughs> no kidding. So yeah, that's a long, that's a long time ago. Long, oh, 1981 I see on here. Yeah. So, uh, okay. And then well, there was my house is killing me, which was my first introduction to your uh, your works here, and I find it fascinating. And then my wife picked it up, Jeff, and uh, I'll never forgive you. Uh, uh, I've been back <laughs> ever since. Right? My honey to-do list grew tremendously. Yeah. But, yeah. Uh, no, actually, she loved it as well, and, and we're very happy to have you on the program. And uh, so you have you started out doing home inspections, and now you've gotten into the indoor air quality industry. How long have you been specializing in just indoor air quality? Uh, well, I started actually in, in uh, 1992 doing the indoor air quality, and it was just kind of a side thing in the beginning, and then it evolved gradually into basically all that I do. So I, I sold the other business and uh, doing full-time uh, investigations in schools and homes and offices, whatever. Very well known, and I'm just curious, are you a, a sole proprietor? Do you have other people that work with you as well i did for a while i had a couple of people i just actually my my wife works full-time with me now so it's just uh it's just the two of us we do and we actually do some of the work together out in the field and that would be connie yep excellent she's the co-author of the mold survival guide and actually the next book too we have another one uh it's due in about a week oh really can you tell us a little bit about that one it's a sort of a, uh, oh, how can I say? It's a sort of a. It, it's a very simple book compared to the others. It's just a. It's a kind of a book of tips. It's a really just. You know, we we would hear from from a lot of people. We get emails and calls from people, and they you know they just want 
they don't want to have anything explained to them. I mean, I was a science teacher. I like people to understand things. And they, everybody says, just you know, tell me what to do. So that book will just be lots and lots of tips on what to do to keep uh, you know, the indoor air healthy. That sounds like that is something that we'll have to get a copy of when it comes out, Jeff. And you expect that in the next month or so, you say? Oh, no. Well, the manuscript is due, but it'll be a while before you'll have to... Uh, you know, do some more vacuuming, Joe. Sometime. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I, I did a little more than vacuuming after that. But, uh. <laughs> okay. It takes, about a, it takes at least a year, a year and a half. I see. Well, that was actually one of the things I enjoyed about My House is Killing Me. You gave some very practical tips for homeowners. And, and I'm curious, do you get involved on in writing protocols for projects, or do you primarily just go in and tell people what to do and then give them a list of contractors? How do you handle that? Yeah, but that's sort of what I do. I mean, I, I don't uh, do much in the way of sort of specifying. I just generally outline things. What, what I really enjoy is solving problems. You know, people have some, some issues, and then I go in and I take my air samples and my dust samples, and then and then I, I do all my own microscopy, and I just look at the samples. I might take, uh, you know, 20, 30 samples in a, you know, in a small space. And then uh, what it allows me to do is to sort of figure out the source. It just kind of drives me crazy when people go in and take, you know, a sample or two of the air, and then they say, oh, you know, you've got a problem. There's, you know, penicillium or aspergillus or something that's elevated. And then the... The, the the building occupant doesn't know what to do. There's no answer there because the source hasn't been located. So you do your own analysis. Do you do it on site? Do you take it back to your own uh, spot, or do you do both? Well, I, you know, I, I I have a microscope in my office with a with a camera, and then I also have one that I sometimes travel with. So on occasion, in some emergencies or for whatever, you know, for various reasons where people needed to know things on the spot. But what I found is that it's too easy to make mistakes looking at samples for very quickly in a short period of time on site. So if you just want to find out if something is mold or not, I think that's fine. Uh, but, you know, some of the more subtle things require oil immersion and a lot, you know, it takes a while for the stain to take and you can't really rush through these things. I'm curious what your thoughts are on the uh, ERMI. Are you familiar? I'm sure you're familiar with EPA. Well, now it's the Environmental Relative Moldiness Index and PCR. Have you been playing with that at all, Jeff? Uh, no, and I, I did actually. You know, I just had a, a, an article in that Indoor Environment Connections. I think the um, that what is it? QPCR. I think it's going to be too. It, it may be too sensitive. I think it's going to be useful for for some things. Very useful. And it's a terrific sort of research tool, but I mean, for everyday uh, analysis, it's probably it's, it's really overkill. Uh, I mean, the, the greatest tool, as far as I'm concerned, for all all air quality work, at least with bioaerosol, anyways, is the microscope. And I guess your own uh, nose and eyes and ears as well. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean that's really key. Yeah. You've got to learn to listen to what the customers and clients are telling you and then try and figure out what the problem is. And I'm curious, do you work with any other inspectors? Do you do any training courses? Have you ever been, you know, do you do guest speaking? 
Oh, oh, I do uh, lots of speaking. I've given you know hundreds of talks. I'm doing one at that Maine Indoor Air Quality uh, meeting in March, and um, done some for uh, IACWA. I did, and uh, I actually taught training. I had uh, I had two or three sessions uh, of um, teaching people how to do microscopy. It was actually it was a lot of fun. I had uh, video camera, the microscope, and ten stations and there are some people out there now who that's all they do, really. They started doing it, you know, as a result of that course, and now they just, that's all they do is air quality. All right. And uh, you don't do any home inspections at all now. Do you, I'm just curious what you tell people who are looking for a good home inspector with your background. What type of tip do you give to a consumer who's looking for a good home inspector? Don't take the real estate agent's recommendation. <laughs> 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 no, yeah, there's there's a great. I mean, a lot of real estate agents are very you know reputable and et cetera, et cetera. But the bottom line is that if a home inspector is very very thorough, uh, they they're not really going to be getting uh, they're not going to be getting the, the best inspection they could if they're going to if they referral to the broker because you can't you know you. There's a lot of money uh, riding on every deal, and there's you know thousands of dollars in commission. And if you, you know, I, my experience with, as a, when I was doing that work is was that if you if you mess up a deal because of something that you find on a home inspection, the real estate agent never calls you back. They never refer anybody to you again because they've lost their commission. Uh, my partner left some questions here, and I think I'd like to get Zach to jump in for a moment and ask a absolutely, few of these questions absolutely what what effect does an IEQ problem have on a family's interpersonal relationships well it's uh, it can it, it can be very very straining uh, I mean in, 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 in also places of work as well I mean Usually there, there are only a small number of people, maybe one person who's really suffering. It's very common to find, you know, the husband who's at work all day, let's say he doesn't have exposure at home, whereas his wife may be home a lot more during the day and the kids are home and they have much higher exposures and they're more likely to be sensitized. And, uh, and they just, they don't, uh, they really don't believe in, uh, they don't believe it. They just think the wives are complaining. Yeah, well, the kids are complaining, and I mean, I've actually had some people who have happened to me. I think maybe twice now, where they got the report, and then the wife said, "You know, hey, screw you," and they got divorced. <laughs> and I didn't get sued, <laughs> but you know, they finally they realized, you know, there was a reason. You know, and uh, is there a, some type of an statistical analysis that you've done on this, or is there some data on who? is affected more as far as target groups, men, women, children? Uh, I don't have that so much, uh, you know, as, uh, <clears throat> but that's a, an observation. That what the statistical analysis I did do, I actually compared 600 uh, sick buildings to 300 control buildings that I had in, inspected. And I, what I found was that the, the, um, the likelihood of having respiratory problems was twice as great if you had central air conditioning in a in a home, hmm. or if you had a finished basement with carpet, that was also very very high. And the interesting thing that came out of it was that that visible water stains and damage was not that co highly correlated. And what it really what it told me was that 
really the biggest problem in 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 homes, and it's actually in other buildings and in, in bigger buildings too. It's the bioaerosol coming from the air conditioning system, where you've got wet dust all the time, and then carpets because they can have huge infestations of mold as a result of high humidity or mold, whatever. And, and you don't see it. You walk on it, and you have tremendous uh, exposure because of the disturbance of the mold. CJ, your um, your comments on carpet actually actually made me think of something. I every, every, every day I every day I go to the gym and I work out. And where I work out, some somebody thought, oh well, let's put carpet in the men's locker room where where quite possibly hundreds of guys are coming out of the showers dripping wet and walking on it as I'm, as I'm, and as I'm sure you're aware of uh, athlete's foot is technically a fungus so are i can they have carpeted locker rooms yes yes the the actual section where the lockers are are is carpeted is carpeted why do you go there <laughs> <laughs> because it's close to home <laughs> He wears plastic, those little plastic uh, sandals. Uh, when oh, trust me. Towel. Trust me. I have that, and I disinfect my gym towels every week. I have a fresh <laughs> towel every day. Trust me. Good. Good. <laughs> what? That's, that's amazing. I know one of the more difficult issues that people who do indoor air quality investigations face are odor problems. Jeff, can you talk to us a little bit about some of the common odor problems that you run into? Yeah. Yeah, they're, the odor problems are a killer. I mean, they're very, very hard to, to you know, sort of resolve and, and, and to figure out. And, and actually, we have a test in the book. We talk about this thing. I, I actually devised this thing. Uh, it's called an aluminum the, uh, paper towel or aluminum foil test. Uh, you know, if you have an odor coming from a surface, you just can't locate that. And so what, what I have people do is just take a nice, clean paper towel and then fold it in half twice and then just lay it on that surface and then cover it with a piece of aluminum foil and tape it in place. Now, if the surface is off-gassing, the paper towel will absorb the odor. And uh, you do that, you leave it in place for a day. You can put like 20 pieces of you know, foil in, in an environment, do ceilings, walls, floors, and you label them and number them, and then you, you remove it, you fold it up very quickly because the aluminum foil then seals in that odor. And you go to a place where there's no odor outside, if that's convenient, and then you sniff them one by one. And <clears throat> if it's the source, then that will actually, uh, you know, it, it'll be obvious. And <laughs> the way I discovered that was sort of funny. It was in a, it was actually a law office, and nobody can go into this one meeting room because they would get sick, they would get nauseous, and have headaches and things. So for six months they couldn't use that room. And I actually, I went in there. I spent about an hour and a half, I was taking all dust samples and surface samples, and finally I, I noticed that there was a, a yellow page sitting on top of the table, this beautiful mahogany table. And I picked it up and I sniffed the top, and there was no odor at the top of the book. And then I flipped it over and I smelled the bottom, and it reeked of butyric acid, which is a you know, bacterial product, uh, like you know, from in a sponge. Someone had wiped the table with a dirty sponge, and for six months, nobody could go into that room. And we just we cleaned the table with a little ammonia, which was the base, and neutralized the butyric acid. And the smell went away. They were eating lunch there the next day. Wow. So wow. based on that, that observation, <clears throat> I, I came up with that uh, aluminum 
aluminum foil paper towel tent. What other kinds of odor problems do you run into? I just it just so happens I just came back from Florida and um I'm not sure if you're familiar with this. There's a a wallboard that's apparently causing some odor issues. Have you heard about that at all? It's well, I'm not, I haven't heard about specifically the wallboard, but I have had a lot of problems with paint. There's some particular manufacturer actually where uh, it's only on, on, on sunny, warm days where you get this like really sickening, mercaptan-like odor, and that's coming uh, from the paint. I've had that in, in a couple of situations. And then in, it actually went and <laughs> looked at a place in New York where a woman was chemically sensitive, built this house with tile floors. Everything was supposed to be perfect. And I, you walk in the door, and you know, I just about had a headache in about in seconds. And uh, what, we, what we figured out was the problem was the joint compound. It was so weird. You'd smell the wall, and there'd be no odor. And every 16 inches on center, there was this terrible, terrible smell, irritating. And, what they had put, someone had put fungicide in the joint compound, so it only smelled at the inside and outside corners of the drywall, and then where they had been nailed onto the studs. Hmm. And other types of odor problems that that you run into. Um, what about like in HVAC systems? What's the most common problem you find with respect to odors in HVAC systems? Well, most I guess you know just where the where the uh, where the liners. Have gotten wet, and uh, you know it's funny. You get this sort of, it's this sort of ecological, you know, growth. You have the first, you know, the primary colonizers, and you get bacteria, and then you get yeast, and and if you, you know, mold. So that seems to be the, you know, the most common odor problem there. Same, I guess, I would say probably bacteria, mold, and carpets. Very obviously, very very common. Uh, we had, let's see. Uh, strange odors that we talk about it in the book there for for a long time the uh, window screens were made made out of uh, by one manufacturer really in the whole country and I think it was in Tennessee and they were vinyl uh, fiberglass screens and they, it, it, that could make a whole house smell when the sun would hit them and uh, you know you get these strange things like people you know have no no odor until Ten o'clock or two in the afternoon or something, and or it disappears suddenly when the part of the house shades another part. Uh, <clears throat> so there've been a lot of uh, a lot of those uh, screens, uh, off-gassing problems, paint problems, uh, sewer gas is obviously another one. You know, intermittent sewer gas problems that causes people to have headaches. I've got a, a question that Cliff left behind. What do-it-yourself IAQ disasters have you encountered? Oh, I guess uh, all kinds. But uh, you know, the I got my I like those uh, those drier uh, when people with the energy crisis they were trying to humidify their house and they put those uh, I can't even think of what they call them now these you know those baskets with the water inside them and I actually had one. What do they call it? Yeah, lint traps, right? The water lint traps. They'd actually, they put, uh, there was enough cellulose in there that Stachybotrys was actually growing. Wow. Oh, God. In the lint trap. And then another guy built a, uh, uh, he built a a greenhouse on the side of his house and incorporated that as part of his, uh, the return system where he was sort of, you know, preheating the air in the greenhouse. But 
there were mostly just mushrooms growing in you know dirt. <laughs> I mean, they were sick. I mean, they, these people were ill. I mean, they, um, I had people that uh, vented their dryer into the basement through the made even little filters, you know, put the, like to try and filter the lint out. Well, it just uh, goes on and on, I guess. What um, I'm I'm curious. What about uh? As far as people who are asthmatic or prone to allergies, what type of heating system do you recommend for those types of people? Yeah, well, no, I mean, no question about it. I, I recommend uh, a, uh, you know, hot, forced hot water and, and not, you know, central air or heat pump or any of that. I mean, or a furnace, I should say. Now, um, you have to sort of draw a little line here because a lot of you know there, a lot of people have asthma as a result of let's say tree and grass pollen or outdoor mold, and those people really have to have their indoor air sort of very well filtered. So they do need to have some sort of air conditioning set up or filtration or what have you. But the the big problem that I find is that if you have central air conditioning uh, in in any building actually what what happens is that you've got moisture, you have mostly inadequate filtrations, you have dust accumulation on the coil, you get buildup of all kinds of microbial uh, <clears throat> growth. And, and so that, that material, which is mostly kind of wet in the air conditioning season, dries out during the heating season, and you get a lot of bioaerosol. So people who have uh, systems, central systems with air conditioning and heating combined, they are exposed to the same allergens you know, spring, summer, fall, and winter. And so that really raises the likelihood that they're going to get some sort of immune response. If you got baseboard, if you have baseboard convectors, at least for most of the, for most of the winter season, you're not going to have the exposure to the bioaerosol. In the swing season, you have open windows, so really you're only dealing with, with the air conditioning season, and, and that makes it a lot simpler. So they ought to be separate eating and, and separate I see. What um, IAQ problems have you encountered related to fuel oil? Cliff left that question for us as well. Well, I I suppose most well, fuel oil is a problem mostly, uh, you know, because of, uh, of leaks. There have been a lot of situations where you know people are, have chemical sensitivities. They get the um, fuel oil uh, odors are a problem. I have had. I actually had one, a, uh, this is interesting, where I, I, I use that TIFF 8800, if people are familiar with that, it's a great, it's a combustible gas meter detector, and it, it makes noise, it's ticking sound, uh, great for finding sources of odors, and uh, he went into the basement of this place, and there was this intermittent uh, <coughs> screeching increase, and, and you kind of follow the sort of odor back to its source, and it, and took me to the gasket on the top of the oil tank. The gasket was loose, and it just so happened that the air vent for uh, for this thing was facing, I guess, northwest, so the, the prevailing winds would blow against this thing and actually pressurize the tank, and then the fumes would come out of the out of the gasket. So they had a constant oil smell because of that. Uh, and that was an easy uh, an easy fix. What, uh, what's been some of the most difficult? fixes that you're, or difficult problems that you've encountered, hardest to solve? Well, I, I suppose the, you know, situations where you, 
you go in and and you don't really you don't really see anything uh, in in the samples. And often, what I'll do in those situations is to just go go from let's say normally I look at things at 400 uh, magnification, you go up to a thousand, and it's really it's just unbelievable what you'll find sometimes. And they'll be uh, you look at the samples from a building, and there'll be really not much to see, no molds for particularly, but just a lot of little amorphous little pink things that don't look like much of anything. And when you go to a higher magnification, you suddenly you can see that the, they're like little clusters of bacteria and broken mold spores and hyphae, and you realize that, that um, let's say, the carpet, or actually, look, just last night I was <laughs> looking at a sample, and it was all kinds of little clumps of microbial stuff coming out of the heating system. And, but you could not, you would never see that unless you really focus in on, on that sample at a, at a very high magnification. So uh, you see people are sick, but you know, there doesn't seem to be any obvious reason. But when you look a little more carefully at the sample, you see that there's a really good reason for their, for their illness. What about uh, some of the IAQ problems that are attributed to fireplaces or these natural gas fireplaces? I, I guess the... Uh, I don't like those uh, those fireplaces that you know that vent inside. A lot of them, you know, they'll have uh, reversal of the you know the draft. There's combustion products, and actually you can get some pretty good uh, sooting. You know that uh, thermal telegraphing. You can uh, because the flame the the flame is yellow. Those are um, not complete combustion in the flame. People like candles. People like uh, those those gas logs because the flame isn't just blue, it's that golden sort of yellow color of the incandescent carbon particles. And and if you don't have good uh, venting, those things get into the environment and you're, you know you breathe them in, that's not so great, but then they deposit all over the ceilings and the walls and the cold spots. And, uh, and you got a big mess to clean up, the costly repainting. Anything you'd like to add that we missed, Jeff? Uh, I guess the the most important thing, and this is sort of the topic of that main the talk I'm going to be doing in Maine, is that you know you have to believe people. You know, just because you take uh, a sample and there's not a lot of VOC or you're not getting any, you know, you culture the air and there's very few mold spores and bacteria, and if people are, are having serious allergy problems or asthma or what have you in the building, there's there's really something wrong, and you just you have to keep looking until you find, you know, you find out what it is. They're not, you know, most people aren't in there. They're not going to be lying, uh, and you can see that they have the symptoms they're having. So um, it's just, it's too easy to, you know, to sort of discount these things uh, just because the tests that you did didn't really detect what, you know, what the problem is. So listen more closely and continue to work with the folks until you figure out what exactly their problem is. Yep. Exactly. And that's the uh, presentation you'll be doing for what the Maine Indoor Air Quality Council or Maine yeah. Indoor Air yeah. Quality. Yeah, How can listeners get more information about you, your books, and your services? Well, we have uh, we've got two websites. Uh, MayIndoorAir.com is one, and they can email me Jeff at MayIndoorAir.com if they have a question. And then there is also www.myhousekillingme.com. <laughs> Great. 
Thank you very much, Jeff. And now, let's groove to the literary stylings of Dr. Nick Munn. Growing, molding my heart. Growing, Black spores weren't made for flying around. Its spidery colonies evolved to munch outdoors. Other fungi, not humans, were the intended victims for its mycotoxins. One could pronounce similar innocence for the bacteria that cause food poisoning, black widow spiders, even grizzly bears. Although I have acknowledged the mole's nastiness, it's clear that Stachybotrys would have never made mention along these menaces in the media's top ten list of its bad biology without skillful marketing. Attracted to the title, I must confess, I found your book accidentally while searching on eBay. It was a pretty yep. interesting title. You know, as an adult learner, I want to know what's in it for me, and I want this information fast. You know, I must confess to buying a lot of books, which I start and never finish. Most of them are about business and science, subjects I admit to needing to know more about. You know, our guest today is Nick Money, Ph.D., Nick Money teaches in the Department of Botany at Miami University of Ohio. He's the author of Mr. Bloomfield's Orchard, The Mysterious World of Mushrooms, Molds, and Mycologists, and a new book, The Triumph of Fungi, A Rotten History. Uh, the book we're going to discuss today is Carpet Monsters and Killer Spores, The Natural History of Toxic Mold. And I found the book to be a combination of history, science, practicality, and it was all woven together with humor. Well, welcome, Nick. First of all, what's a mycologist, Nick? Well, first of all, thanks for that wonderful review of the book. Well, thank uh, you. I can always use a, use a good plug. Um, you know, the fungi aren't the sexiest things to sell on, on, on bookshelves, but um, uh, I do my best. Yeah, you've done and, a wonderful uh, job. Well, what exactly well, is a mycologist? So mycologist, and there aren't that many of them, I think, in the whole world, is somebody that, that in, a, in a professional setting studies fungi and studies the biology of these organisms. Uh, do you think this is a growth field, a growth industry? How many students, uh, for instance, do you have in a mycology class that you teach? So, so actually, it's a, it's a field in some ways that, that's contracting. I mean, the, the kind of um, organismal biology that I studied years ago in, in, in colleges is not uh, taught on too many campuses today. So that, that's something actually at Miami University that we, we pride ourselves upon is that we actually still cover a, a good deal of this kind of organismal biology, just talking about groups of organisms and how they're related to one another and actually what they do in the natural environment. You know, whether or not anyone's ever told you this or not, but you really have a gift for taking things that are pretty technical and putting them into a term that just any reader, you know, can understand. You know, some of the things that I found fascinating uh, in the book, one thing in particular, and I don't remember ever hearing this before, and Joe remembered hearing it, but he wasn't sure exactly where he heard it, was the fact of, that black mold utilizes a substance known as melanin as a sunscreen. 
Yeah, that, that's absolutely true. And there's a lot of these these dark pigmented fungi that that use. It, it's not really one compound. There's a whole series of different melanins. I mean, we have melanin in our own skin. It's a somewhat different chemical. But the fungi, or many of them, actually do use this as a sunscreen, and they'll actually use it as a natural barrier to to other to, to different substances too. It's a it's a it's a protective structure that that forms within the cell wall of these these dark pigmented fungi, including Stachybotrys. Hmm. You know, a quote from your book: "Hyphae function as microscopic mining devices, probing, penetrating, and thoroughly permeate solid materials and extract." nutrients in their path. That's kind of a new way for me to look at my athlete's foot anyway. Yeah, and that's certainly what, it, what it's doing. I was just looking at some images the other day, actually, um, of, of fungi penetrating skin and nails, and it, it's really interesting to look at them forming these burrows within within our own tissues. It's uh, uh, alarming, I guess, certainly if it's your own tissues that these things are, are growing within. Well, speaking of alarming with that, I thought something called apoptosis was even more alarming. What does that word mean? Well, that's that's the technical term. Well, there's another technical term for that, which is programmed uh, cell death, and that's actually a natural part of of, of life that um, uh, cells within our body and cells within other organisms actually die according to these genetically regulated programs, and that, that's a very very important part of of of, of development, and it also in sort of day to day housekeeping within the human body. Amazing. You know, one of the things I think was interesting is, you know, we all know that there's two scoops of raisins in a box of raisin bran. I never realized that for every spore that was out there, there could be as many as 300 cell fragments floating around. Yeah, that's that's the the result of some really interesting work in the last few few years. That um, when you actually do do spore counts, so based upon indoor air sampling, you're only looking at a relatively small fraction of the number of particles that might be present in the, in the air, because when you when you pass air over a fungal colony, so something growing on a on a surface on drywall, for example. It seems, at least according to these studies, that these smaller particles are also getting getting into the air. And of course, it's possible that, that, that those particles can get into the uh, uh, nasal passages and, uh, and the lungs if um, people are in, in, the, uh, in that location. You know, one of the interesting things I thought also in the book was the fact that um, you brought up this theory, and I, I think it may be more than a theory because in the book you were talking about uh, discussing this with one of your business colleagues with the fact that certain insects could actually transport mold, including Stachybotrys. Yeah, I mean, that, that's certainly a poss possibility, although there's no um, really clear evidence for this at this, this point. Um, but it, it relates to this wider issue of actually how Stachybotrys gets around. So this is the mold that, that um, is most interesting, at least in the courtroom. Uh, and yet it forms these big spores, and they they're formed in these sticky heads. And they're not easily aerosolized. They don't get airborne very easily um, because they're sticky and because they're heavy, relatively speaking. And, and so this is an interesting issue about sort of the, the ecology of the indoor environment and actually how these molds get around, or specifically how Stachybotrys gets around, because it's, it's kind of a sluggish thing, not well designed for, for, for moving around in the air. You know, one of the things I thought was interesting in the book also was, were the number of history lessons uh, that were in it. You know, one of your quotes, you know, uh, in the beginning there was life. You know, the Bible is unassailably correct about that. Or, I'm sorry, I, I misquoted it. In the beginning there was no life. The Bible is unassailably correct about that. 
you know, you went through all these notable facts about Stachybotrys and provided the history of, uh, you know, when it was found, I believe, in Prague and then, uh, you know, in Russia, killed a bunch of horses. And I thought one of the things that was interesting, and I'm not sure whether or not I got this correct, but and please correct me, did you say in the book that there is no Stachybotrys in the United Kingdom? Um, somebody told told me this um, recently that in, in some survey they'd actually never found this in, in their studies of um, air sampling within homes. But since then I've come across reports. I mean, you do see it listed in, in these in mold surveys. But it's certainly something that's not as common as it seems to be in, in our homes. So I, I can't tell you that it's absent from, from, from homes in, in, in Britain. In fact, there's evidence now. Uh, to counter that, but it doesn't seem to be as be as common as we uh, as it is in in uh, the uh, lower 48. Hmm. Interesting. I think one of the things that I, I liked in the book was the manner in which you chronicled, uh, you know, and, I, and I, I quote from the book: by the late 1990s, the media had elevated ubiquitous molds to the status of life-threatening microorganisms, whose appearance transformed homes, schools, and workplaces into toxic environments. Buildings needed to be tested, and toxic ones needed to be cleaned. These tasks were embraced by industrial hygienists who had dealt previously with IAQ problems before mold hit the headlines, and new job titles were printed on business cards. Mold inspector, mold contractor, mold remediator, a new industry was born. Very interesting. Yeah, I mean, there was just a frenzy of interest in this. I think in the early uh, early part of this uh, this millennium, I suppose I should say, shouldn't I? So um, after the um, record, what was it, $32 million judgment in Texas uh, that related to mold contamination of a home close to Austin. Yeah, and, and incredible, the uh, Melinda Ballard case. That's right, Melinda Ballard, yeah. Uh, one of the things that you've done in the book is you've provided some guidance to homeowners and also to remedial practitioners alike, and I'm sure that we might get some discussion on this in the future. Uh, your opinion that spore counts are next to useless for assessing many indoor mold problems, and unless a mold problem is likely to lead to a lawsuit, you're not convinced that anyone should pay a contractor to collect air samples and make moisture measurements. Uh, how would you suggest people that are going into these homes and inspecting ones gather their data? Are you a believer in surface sampling instead? Yeah, I mean, it's obviously a very, very complicated issue. It would take us longer than, you know, a few minutes to really, really get into into this. But I think that a lot of air sampling data have been misused, especially in, in the courtroom. Um, sometimes they're useful. If, if you can actually conduct some air, air sampling and show the, that you've got a much, much higher concentration of spores in the indoor air versus the outdoor air, then that tells you that maybe you've got a source of of, of mold within the home that's, that, that's getting airborne. Certainly, you know, sort of supports that hypothesis. Um, but as I said, I think these data are sometimes um, overused and too much much is made of them. Surface sampling certainly certainly important, but I think most mold inspectors and IAQ specialists have, are also pretty good at just going into a home and figuring out pretty quickly if there's mold growing, visible mold, uh, and a lot of it, and, and whether or not that home is re- going to require some kind of professional remediation. I mean, at, at this level, mycology really isn't anything close to, to rocket science. It's just, uh, uh, you know, it's alarmingly obvious when you go into a home if it's got a really serious microbiological problem. 
Um, there's a statement in your book, and I'd like to know whether you stand by that statement, and the statement is the mere identification of stacky watchers in a home doesn't mean the residents are in danger. Could you yeah, that's, abs- that, that's absolutely true, and in fact, um, in the book I talk about doing a, a, some mold sampling in, in, in my own home that's about 12 years old at, at this point and hasn't got any uh, water problem. Um, but uh, subsequently, I did find stachybotrys in my home. We've got a, a plant stand with a big plant pot on it, and my wife tends to overwater the plant, in my humble opinion. Hopefully, she isn't going to listen to this. Right, mine, uh, mine neither. <laughs> but um, sure enough, underneath that, that pot, you can pick up stachybotrys, and um, you can see these jet black colonies. Um, you know, You can get close to identifying them without a microscope. They're really pretty distinctive. So... Um, and certainly I wouldn't recommend evacuating my house or anything there just because of the mere presence of this organism. Oh, go ahead. Yes, Nick, this is Joe Hughes. I, Hi, Joe. I, I, hello, and uh, welcome. I, this has been fascinating, and I had a few quick questions I wanted to ask. Going back to what Cliff just asked, I did get the impression, however, that you don't, you're not a minimalist either in that you do feel there may be some issues with respect to too much stachybotrys within a home or too much mold in general rather than focusing on stachybotrys. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I, I think, think most physicians will, will agree that molds can, can stimulate allergic symptoms. So if you've got a lot of mold spores in a home, um, anybody that suffers from asthma or hay fever, uh, other other allergies, you know, may have their symptoms exacerbated by the uh, by the presence of mold. Um, so that that's the first point to make. Um, in, in terms of looking at Stachybotrys specifically, I still think there are some interesting studies out there and some unsolved cases that um, give one cause for concern. So if if there's a lot of growth of Stachybotrys in a particular home, I, th- I think that really is something that that deserves some further study and some some caution. Um, So the most celebrated cases are those then out of um, Cleveland, Ohio in the 1990s and these um, infants that suffered from uh, lung bleeding. And that's really an unsolved medical mystery, I think, at this point. There's some people that stand by the the claim that this was as a result of exposure to stachybotrys and other people that, that really refute this. So, um, I mean, it is a nasty organism, and and certainly if there's a lot of it around in in one's home, I think I think one you know should be prudent and use some caution and and actually uh, seek to eradicate it. That's that was one of several interesting uh, points that I I picked up in the book. I guess my one of the first questions I had was how did you come up for the title for the book, and it's carpet monsters and killer spores, a natural history of toxic mold. There's some wording in there that some of the um, industry gurus, for lack of a better uh, term, would find a, you know, a bit alarming, I guess. Yeah, I guess so. So the, a natural history of toxic mold really speaks to what's in the book. The, the carpet monsters um, part of the, the, the title comes from my own childhood encounters with with mold. I was a pretty severe asthmatic as a kid and uh, uh, began to fantasize that there were actually these monsters in the carpeting and so forth that were causing me to feel so lousy and trying and stop stopping me from breathing. So that that's part of it. And I do talk about the uh, allergic effects of, of fungal spores. 
And uh, so what the other part of the title, the killer spores, I mean, certainly that's the way that the media uh, presented this um, in, in the earlier um, earlier years in this, this decade, I think. Well, especially surrounding the Melinda Ballard case. I mean, 60 Minutes and 2020 and so forth had uh, uh, exposés about mold and, and suggesting this was the, you know, the worst thing ever to happen to the United States. But uh, so that's where I... I uh, get the killer spores uh, idea from. That's that's interesting, and I'd like to let our listeners know, and uh, especially those of you that are associated with the uh, investigation and remediation of uh, microbial issues, that um, the book is really not the typical scare tactic book that you might think of. It's really a very well-researched and thorough uh, review of the first mycology and then some of the history of the particular cases like the um, case of the problems that we had in Cleveland after the flooding with the potential for pulmonary hemorrhage and uh, then a discussion of the Ballard case and then following that you've got some other very interesting information about other types of molds that people don't always think of as molds in the last chapter, could you ex- talk to us a little bit about the dry rot and the wet rot that you discuss in the final chapter? Yeah, I mean, as a mycologist, I find these other fungi that grow in the indoor environment really um, very interesting. In fact, uh, I've had a number of um, photographs sent to me uh, by email this year uh, of a fungus. It's a, it's a cup fungus. It's a thing called Pazyza that forms these these brown um, uh, cups, usually about an inch inch across. And I don't know, because we've had a lot of rain this, this summer, at least in the Midwest, um, I think this thing's cropped up uh, in, in a number of homes. But uh, this is really pretty alarming when you look at it in bathrooms and you see whole walls covered with uh, with this particular fungus. And it probably doesn't cause any, any uh, particularly negative health effects, um, but it's certainly unsightly and something that, that most homeowners are going to want to get rid of. Um, the other thing I talk about in the book, though, is this uh, the phenomenon of dry rot, which is um, particularly a problem in on the uh, the West Coast, um, uh, Los Angeles, and so forth, where they've seen a lot of cases of this uh, fungus that uh, destroys the the wood frame of a home, even even under construction. It's really pretty interesting cases, and there's one particular contractor out there that's. Uh, really specializes in uh, uh, dealing with this problem. I would encourage anyone who is interested in that to pick up a copy of Carpet Monsters and Killer Spores and take a a good look at that last chapter, if not the entire book. The last thing I wanted to ask was, as I read this and all the research that went into it and following up on what we just discussed, how long did it take you to research and write this book? I think it was a, it was about a year's work from from start to finish to really research that, and I'm a fairly swift writer, so um, I was yeah, it's, a, it's about a year's work. And you um, have another one now that is coming out or is out. That's right? right. It's just just come out. It's just available on on Amazon for anybody that's interested, and it, it's um, that really deals with epidemic fungal diseases of um, trees and crop plants. Um, so this is really the field of plant pathology that I'm covering in in that book. Interesting. Well, the last thing that I had was a um, kind of interesting 
section of the book where you compared uh, Stachybotrys versus Staphylococcus aureus, and I hope I got the pronunciation right with my mycologist on the line. Could you uh, maybe review a little bit about what you wrote on those two organisms? Yeah, I think there was um, so there was there was an interesting study um, where, where they compared the um, the total number of, of, of injuries that could be tracked to Stachybotrys exposure and then compared that to um, the, the effects of other microorganisms. Okay, and the point there of that study was to suggest that even in sort of the worst case scenario that these, these cases of lung bleeding in, in Cleveland had been caused by Stachybotrys, that there are plenty of other microorganisms that, that we're, we're exposed to that cause you know, far greater injury and far more deaths each year. And so the, the point of that study was to really show that the, the, the media frenzy then surrounding the Ballard case was, really was a frenzy, and it was something that, that, that really was, uh, you know, the concern about indoor molds was really out of control, I think, for a while. And I do think that things have settled down more at this, this point. Um, there seems to be a more measured approach to dealing with indoor, indoor mold and indoor mold problems. And um, so I think that's uh, to the industry's credit that, that, we, that we've gotten to this position today. Well, that's very encouraging as members of the industry. Uh, Cliff and I both are association uh, members, and I'm on the board of one of the uh, largest associations in the country that deals with Indoor Air Quality Association. Cliff is closely involved with several, and it's encouraging to hear someone like yourself that has the background you do in mycology uh, to to say that we uh, seem to be headed in, in the right direction. And uh, with that, what I'd like to do, if um, we still have other questions, but we have to move on, is there's a chance that we may have you join us in the future? No, I'd love to do this. It's really interesting talking to uh, people actually in the, in the industry rather than other, other mycologists. Um, this is what I really do as a consultant often in the courtroom is to try and just to, you know give some measured uh, treatment to this subject and explain to the jury really what fungi are and, and, and when they are a matter of concern and, and when they're not. And uh, I think it's important to get away from sort of just the, these kind of alarmist tactics that uh, prevailed for some years. And hopefully on the next show we'll have some more interaction. We've got quite a few people listening in, but not too many uh, calling or sending instant messages right now. But we're just getting started. That will change, Nick. Uh, Sounds very good. Thank you very much for right. uh, joining us, and we will look forward to talking to you again in the future. Well, let's just tell everyone again how to get the book. Uh, would you suggest that they do a search for you, Nick, uh, your name, Nicholas P. Money, M-O-N-E-Y, on uh, Google, and they'll be able to purchase it from Amazon? Is that the source yep. that you'd recommend? That's, that's probably the best best source is to just go to Amazon.com and type in carpet monsters and killer spores or type in my name, and they'll they'll come across the page for that book. Well, I wanted you to know that I gave your book a five-star rating. You can't get any better than that. I loved <laughs> it. And uh, what I'll do is I, I might mail it to you and get you to autograph it for me. I'd appreciate that. Well, very good. Very All right. good. Thank right. you, Okay. Bye. Bye. Bye for now. Bye. Take care. Bye-bye. We'd like to thank you, our growing group of loyal listeners. Join us next Friday where, where we will be live once again here on Indoor Air Quality Radio, IAQ. Radio.
This has been another IAQ Radio production.